You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Oftentimes, God is using the small, insignificant, struggling to shame the wise. And we believe that it is the church, both global and local, in which God is asserting his plan of redemption across the entire world. The local church, a group of people like us who proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ and we proclaim the gospel together to a world that is dying, who is lost, who is seeking the truth. That is God's plan. And so we, we look here in our story, what we're going to see is God continuing that promise that he will make all things right. And folks, the church, we are a part of God's solution to that plan. But when we look here in Genesis 25, all the way back thousands of years ago, what do we learn? What, what do we see here in the text? We're going to cover all of chapter 25. And here's what we see. The blessing of God moves from Abraham to Isaac. And then from Isaac to Jacob as the plan of God's sovereign grace. Now, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you've called on his name, you're walking in his ways, what are you to do today? What are you to know? We receive the promises of God not through human effort, but complete faith. In God's sovereign grace. Complete faith. We will never be able to realize the promises of God without him working. And we see this throughout this whole chapter. Now, this chapter in particular, it, it, it narrates for us. It highlights the struggle between good and evil. The struggle between God's seed, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent, which we see in Genesis 3. We talked about that. We've, we've highlighted that for us regularly, that we're tracing the seed. We waited for Isaac for years to see Isaac come, and now Isaac is going to have children. We trace that seed, that, that promise to both Eve and now to Isaac. And now I want you to remember, there are really in the Old Testament always three stories going on at one time. Three, really three stories. One, there's a story that's actually taking place, the one that we read here together. Uh, the second story is the story of Israel. Right, when Israel hears this story, it's, it's being told to them in a certain context. And then thirdly, there's an ultimate, there's a grand story. One where God's people, we now, 2,000 years after Jesus, read this. And how does it apply to us how does it apply to our lives? And so we, we need to keep those three stories in our minds, especially this morning, to understand what's happening here in chapter 25. We're going to see a transition from Abraham to Isaac here, and really to Jacob. Right? Moses gives us some final details about Abraham's life, about the end of his life, I used to run track in high school, and I used to run the, uh, the four by eight, which is 200 meters. 
And so we would all practice running the 200 meter. But what we would also practice is handing the baton. And so here's the thing. You could be the fastest team in the state. If you stepped out of your lane or mishandled the baton in the, the required time length or distance length, then you were going to be disqualified. And so it didn't matter how good we were, how fast we were. It didn't matter. We had to hand the baton off correctly. And we, as God's people, hand off the gospel. And here, Abraham hands off the promise to his son Isaac. And then now, Isaac will hand off the baton to his son Jacob. The question, though, that's most important in our minds is this. How is the promise passed down from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob? How is it passed down? So we're going we're gonna to walk quickly through those first 18 verses to set up the context of the story of Jacob and Esau. So verse 1, Abraham had taken another wife. So this is after Sarah had passed away. He, t- he takes another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran and Joskim and Medan and Midian, Isba and Shrua. Now, we, you, we read those names like, hey, why, why is that important? Well, here's what's important. Uh, these names actually show up later in the Old Testament. And these are the people, these, the, the, the people that come from the descendants of these sons are some of the people that bring Jesus Christ the gold and incense and myrrh. So just so you know, just an interesting concept. So Abraham is a, is, yes, received the promise in Isaac, but he's also becoming a father of many nations. And so skip down to verse 4. And Midian's sons were Ephah and Epher and Hanak and Abida and Elda. All these were sons of Keturah. Abraham gave everything he owned to Isaac. That is the inheritance. That is all that the inheritance was. The promise was given to Isaac. Verse 6. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. That is Keturah and maybe even other wives that he took after Sarah. And while he was still alive, he sent them eastward, away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Remember, he has to hand the baton off to Isaac. And there could be no competition between these other sons. We've already seen this with Ishmael. Isaac was the promised one. So Abraham sends these families away. And remember, going away, going eastward is not a good thing. We're going away from the presence of God. We're going away from the promises of God. And then verse 7, this is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. He took his last breath and died at a good old age, old and contended, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zoar the Hethite. This is the field that Abraham bought from the Hethites. Abraham was buried there with his wife Sarah. Remember Abraham, in faith, buys this property. He, he goes, he contends for this property. He's now a property owner in Canaan, the land that God had promised. His wife has died, and he buries her there. He's now buried in the promised land, one that he, will, he and his descendants will inherit because of God's promises. And look at verse 11. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who lived near Bear Laharoi. Here's what's important. 
God is the one who blesses people. The promises of God have to be received because God is the one who is blessing people. We cannot create or manufacture that blessing on our own. It is God who provides it. Think back to Genesis 1. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 2, God makes Adam and Eve, gives them tasks, does it together, and he blesses them. God keeps his promises. And so now he blesses Isaac. So as we get to verse 19, it's that now this bridge, it sets up this, this passage with three actions that God takes and then how we should respond. So there's going to be three actions that God takes. There's going to be three responses, one to follow each action. Okay, so let's look down at verse 19. We're going to see the first action that God takes. God continues the family of promise. Look at verse 19. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Moses begins a new section uh, here in Genesis. It's called uh, the Toledot. It's the generations. These are the generations of Abraham, of Isaac. The death of Abraham has now paved the way for Isaac and his children to take center stage in God's story. The question is, who will the children of Isaac be? Who will carry on the promises of God? And interestingly enough, Isaac isn't heard much more after this. We'll see him next week, and then he's kind of done. He's really a bridge from Abraham to Jacob. And it says, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took uh, as his wife, Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel and Aram, the Pada Aram, and his sister of Laban, the Aramean. Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Notice the problem. If God is saying there's going to be a, a seed, a son, we know it's not Isaac at this point. The same uh, was Sarah's problem. She could not have children. Rebecca is barren. There's nothing they can do. Unable to continue the promise of God. And it's summed up in one verse. We see later that the boys, they're, they're born when Isaac is 60. 20 years is summed up in one verse. One verse. And now look at Isaac's response. Look what he does because of, of his wife's barrenness. He prays. He entreats on her behalf before the Lord. Look at verse 21. At the end of verse 21, the Lord was receptive to his prayer. His wife, Rebecca, conceived. Now I want to make a connection all the way back in verse 11. All the way back in verse 11, God blessed Isaac. And he lived where? In Be'er Laharoi. That is the place where God sees, God hears his people. And Isaac has a relationship with God so much so that he prays and he goes and he asks of the Lord. And God responds to him. So much so that his wife is able to conceive children. She's pregnant. This is clearly a provision of the Lord. We've seen this already with Sarah. This is a recreative act in a broken world. God brought life out of a barren womb. And this blessing, the continued promise, will take divine intervention. They could do nothing without God's help. From Isaac to Israel to us, we must remember God is the one who continues the promise. He's the one who secures it and continues it. 
Remember the three stories here, which bring us, bring us to our response. Dependence on the Lord, on his power and his provision. Remember the three stories. Isaac, he can do nothing to change in circumstances. He can't make Rebecca able to have children, but he does this through prayer. And God hears him. Church, do you believe that God hears your prayers? Do you pray knowing that God is going to hear your prayers? Because I think for some of us, the reason we don't pray is we actually don't think it works. Our God hears us. And he's receptive to us when we pray. Isaac knows this. He's experienced this. And God responds to him. But the second story is Israel. They're probably hearing this before they enter into the promised land. They cannot force their way into the promised land. There are giants there. There are enemies there. They can't do it on their own. Are they going to trust in the Lord's power and the Lord's provision? Or are they going to try to do it on their own? Then ultimately, the grand story. Is God's church going to try to secure his promises with any kind of human effort? Are we going to try to do church the world's way, or are we actually going to do what God has called us to do? As Paul says, are we going to be entangled in other pursuits in 2 Timothy? Or are we going to be focused on handing down the gospel person by person? so that they may trust him and invite others into God's family. We cannot secure God's promises with any kind of human effort. We depend on God's power and provision, not our own. How, how though, do we sometimes depend on our own power? Well, we, we think we're in control. We think we have the answers. We think we can control and manipulate situations. I was in a conversation with a, with a dear friend this week and was, I was sharing about something going on in, in our lives about kind of what God was doing. And I was like, you know what? I just kind of wanted the ability to say no to that. But no was said for me. And he said, you didn't really want that opportunity. You just wanted the sovereignty to be able to say no to the opportunity. And then that struck me that what I really wanted was the control. I wanted to be the one in control of the situation. How often are we trying to manipulate and control the situation knowing that our efforts aren't going to do anything? Whether it's praying for your children who have walked away from the Lord. Whether it's that coworker who is really nasty to you, but you're trying to love them and be kind to them. Whatever it is, how are you trying to control it? How do we depend on our own power and provision? Is it that job that we hold? that gives us title and prestige, and does that help uh, us be secure in ourselves? Is the money that we make a way in which we say, I can provide for my family? Fellows, I know that's hard, that we're called to provide for our families, but then we have to trust the Lord to do so. When we depend on our own effort, we're not actually trusting God. We're not actually trusting him to continue to provide for us. When we're faced with real challenges that we can't meet, it reminds us of our inability to actually change our circumstances. 
It shows us what real dependence takes. It is this dependence that's cultivated in us, that it's cultivated into trust, trust in God's power and his provision. And we know this because we know that salvation is not something that we can do on our own, that God is the one who offers that to us. But oftentimes we, we get the wires mixed. God is the one who continues the promise. So we must depend on his power and provision to receive his promises and not in our own strength. Which brings us to our second action, our second action by God. God chooses who will receive the promise. God chooses who will receive the promise. Look there at verse 22. But the children inside of her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. I think that's a fair question. God, we prayed to have children. You gave me children. And now there's something going on here. You see, the struggle in her room was no ordinary or mild discomfort during pregnancy. It was not normal. Right, this struggle could be described as violence. And then the Lord explains to us. That's how, that's how much fight is inside of her womb. If you think your children fight really badly, parents, you should, you should be here in this moment. Right? I, th- I thought I fought really bad with my brother, but this is, is a really bad situation that she's now asking, God, what's going on? And so she, what does she do? She seeks after the Lord again. Look at verse 23. And the Lord responds to her and said to her, right, so let me pause there real quick. This is an oracle. This is a word of the Lord. This is a prophecy. And he gives this to Rebecca. Two nations are in your, in your womb. Remember? Israel hearing this story, it's, it's one part of the story. They are hearing this. It's bigger than just these two boys. It's bigger than Jacob and Esau. You see, the Israelites, when they are freed by God of Egypt and they, they go to the promised land, one of their mortal enemies are going to be the Edomites. And they're going to fight, they're going to struggle. Edomites attack them on their way to the promised land. And there's this struggle, not just between Jacob and Esau, but between now two nations, between Israel and Edom. And they experience that that real struggle, that real conflict. And so he says, two peoples will come from you and be separated, which highlights the conflict. One people will be stronger than the other. And notice this, and the older will serve the younger. The oracle of the Lord lays out the future for the twins, Jacob and Esau. Right, but God flips the natural order on its head. Right, it was tradition, even part of the law in Deuteronomy, that the oldest would receive a double portion of the inheritance. And instead, as the oracle climaxes to the end, God chooses the younger brother, Jacob, to receive the inheritance and continue the promise. Let me be very clear. Often we look here at Jacob, we think he's the bad guy. He seems to be deceptive and manipulative, which we're going to see here in just a moment. Later in Genesis, we see Jacob wrestle with God. God does not choose Jacob based on any goodness or supremacy of his own. Jacob owes his supremacy in God's eyes not to natural selection, but to divine election. So let me define what is election. Election means that God has chosen us as his people. God has chosen to make us a people, plural, 
that he loves and to show his grace and mercy and kindness and compassion to. Israel knows that. As they listen to this story, they, they find their identity and purpose in what God has called them to. To know that in the battle of Jacob and Esau, that they understand who they are. And you see, God's election, God's choosing of Israel is the same as Jacob. It's not based on anything they did. It wasn't based on anything they could have done. It was based solely on his promise to their ancestors, to Eve, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God explains why he chose Israel. Let me, let me read this to you. I'm going to start in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept his oath he swore to your ancestors. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh's king of Egypt. Know that the Lord, your God, is God, the faithful God, who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. The Lord chose Israel solely out of his abundant grace. They they didn't, they didn't deserve that. God was faithful to his promises. And so here in the same way, is it not the the same with us, the church, God's people? Are we not recipients of God's grace? Has he not chosen to show us compassion and mercy through the gospel? Nothing that we did could earn or work our way to salvation. But God chose to freely give that to us. The story of Jacob and Esau displays God's favor as graciously given It cannot be earned, and it is not deserved by position or ability. And church, because we now have received that election in Christ, we can now display that grace and that sovereignty and that plan and that promise to the world. Offering to anyone who will repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That we have experienced God's grace so much so that it pours out. It floods out of these doors into our community to anyone who will hear it, anyone who will believe and trust in Jesus. You see, church, we depend, we must depend on God's grace. That's the response here. We depend on God's grace, not our goodness. I want to be very clear, not trying to be mean in any way, shape, or form, but if if you believe that you're going to get to heaven based on your works, based on thinking that, you know, if I just do the right things, I'll be a good person, I go to church on Sunday morning, I know all the right answers. If you believe that, you have not experienced God's gracious salvation. God's gracious salvation is that he came in your place to die for you knowing that you couldn't do it. And church, that should give us hope because when I look at my life, I look at all the times that I've struggled and failed. But God did what I could not do and lived a perfect life in Jesus Christ for me and for you. Now look here in the story, back at verse 24. 
when the time came to give birth, there was indeed twins in her womb. So number one, God was right. Verse 25, the first one came out red looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping on Esau's heel with his hand. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. So understand, Esau's name comes with his red-looking hair around his body. And that's how the people, the Edomites, will look when uh, they, are, they become his descendants. Jacob is named Jacob because it, in the original language, it has this tie to heel. And when she was grabbing after his heel. Some like to think that this is a, a negative thing that he was grabbing. Some like to think it's positive. Either way, Jacob is grasping onto his brother foreshadowing this grasping onto the inheritance. And now, on one hand, it's easy to look back and to see how God works supernaturally through events to bring us to himself. We know when we look back, we can say God was clearly sovereignly working in my life. He's elected us and made us a new creation. Now, on the other hand, though, for today and tomorrow, we must walk by faith, discerning how the Lord will work through us and we can't always figure out those tensions but it is both true that God has worked and is sovereign over all things in his providence and in his election and now we must trust him and walk in faith today and tomorrow we must depend on his grace for salvation so that when we experience that grace of salvation there's now something he calls us to do which brings us to our third action by God in the passage God calls his people to live by the promise. God calls his people to live by the promise. Now Moses, the writer of Genesis, takes a moment to fast forward in time in the lives of Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau. It seems that there needs, we need to understand this story, starting in verse 27, by what God has said in verse 23. So look there at verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter an outdoorsman. But Jacob was a quiet man and stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now we're immediately clued into the dynamics in the family. I told you that going through Genesis is going to be a lot like a soap opera. That's exactly what's happening. There is so much tension here that you could cut it with a knife in this family. Right? Esau knows his mother probably doesn't love him as much as Jacob. And Jacob knows he's thinking about this promise. I'm sure Rebecca's telling him over and over again, you are the promised child. There's a distinct contrast between Jacob and Esau, even between their parents. God's word must have stayed with Rebecca. Right? And so Isaac, even though Rebecca loves Jacob, Isaac loves Esau, at least what Esau can provide. Esau is a man's man. He's a great hunter. He's very differently than me. I in no way could do that, any of that. Any hunting, any kind of things outside, I'm not very good at. So Esau is the kind of guy I aspire to. But that's not the only way that he's described. But Isaac was, a, was, was fond of those physical attributes of Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob because he was quiet. He stayed at home. He could cook. And now for the first time in their in, in, in their interactions, we see how they respond. Look at verse 29. Once, Jacob was cooking a stew. Now, I don't think this is a random day. 
I think this is a day that Jacob had waited for for a long time. Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is why he's also named Edom. Esau comes in from a long day of hunting. He smells the stew and he's like, I want to eat some of that. Guys, we can understand that, right? We come home from a long day's work. We're like, hey, I, like, I want some of that stew. I want some of that. So he comes in, but Moses gives us some clues here to understand the story. Esau acts without thinking, no reflection, no concern for the future. He's just about the here and now. Let me eat. Literally, let me gulp down that stuff is what it's saying. The original language said, let me gulp down. Right? You, you know your kids in the car? Like, and you're on the way to dinner, and they're like, oh, we're starving. They're freaking out. Right, we, we've, this is what Esau's doing. Like, I want to eat now, Daddy. Please let me eat now. That's exactly what he's doing. There's urgency highlighted by the fact that you see here in our English translation, this red stuff. It's literally the red red. Give me the red. Give me this stuff because I am famished. And so Jacob, with foresight and reflection, He thinks of the future over the immediate. Look there at verse 31. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Before I give you any stew, sell me your birthright. This is a very calculated move by Jacob. He might have been planning this for years, to be honest. And look, said Esau, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? Right, remember birthright was by tradition Esau since he was first born. He was the one to receive the inheritance, the one to receive the promise. But in this moment, he believes he is dying so much so, it's like, what does this birthright matter to me? I'm not going to make it tomorrow. Esau trades his future for a small and fixable problem. Esau believed his birthright was useless to him. It was worthless. He wasn't concerned or bothered by God's promises. This immediate struggle was the only thing on his mind. Church, we live in an instant gratification culture. We have microwaves. We have fast food. And to be honest, since COVID, we're all mad about fast food because they're not fast anymore. Right? If we're really honest, we're mad. that It takes McDonald's and Young's were like 20 minutes to get your food. Yes. And we're, we're like, why can't it be faster? That's a part of the problem. We live in an instant gratification culture. Kids, I want you to look at me for a second. You don't get everything you want. You will not get everything you want. And lots of times, you don't get it when you want it. Your parents are trying to teach you something called delayed gratification. That's exactly Esau's problem. See, he wanted it now. And he, he wanted a short, short-term gain for a long-term loss. It's exactly what happens here in this story. And parents, you do well to teach your children to delay that gratification because they don't always get the answer from God that they want. We don't always get the answer from the Lord that we want or in our timing. So Jacob, knowing the situation, knowing what's happening, look at verse 33. Jacob said, swear to me first. Before I give you anything, swear to me. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. Esau ate, drank, got up, and went away. Very, just very, just to the point. It's over. 
So Esau despised his birthright. Think about this. The skilled hunter, Esau, compared to other great hunters in the Old Testament, Esau, the great hunter, fell to a better trap. Jacob's manipulation. He fell into that trap to sell his birthright. You see, church, God calls us to live by the promise. He calls us to live by the promise. And if we're going to do that, we must desire God's perspective. We must desire God's perspective, not, not have an earthly one. Right, we see in Esau, it's the opposite of what God calls us to. Right, even here, God has chosen Jacob, yes, but both Jacob and Esau are responsible for their actions, and so are we. We're called to live by faith, to cherish our inheritance that we just sang about. That our vision would be on God, on Christ, and over things of this world. Esau is not someone we want to emulate. So when tasting comes, desire God's promises. When struggle comes, desire God's promises. When selfishness strikes, desire God's promises. When short-sightedness fills our minds, desire God's promises. Because here's the thing. If we're going to defeat sin, we're going to walk in faith, we have to believe, we have to trust, we have to want the things of God. And if we're ever going to want the things of God over the things of this world, then we have to have that perspective, that that inheritance. To be with God forever, to be like Jesus, is better and more important than anything that's going to pass away in our lifetime. You will not defeat sin until you believe that God's way is better. You actually believe it. God calls us to complete faith in his promises. That's our response, which produces a desire for God's perspective. And notice here, church, though, Jacob is not someone we really want to emulate either at this point. Even though God has chosen Jacob, God uses broken people. He uses broken people. And maybe you walked into these doors today and you, you were weighed down by the sin that you've been fighting all week. God uses broken people. The Bible is full of the stories of, of broken people. There's only one not broken person, and that's Jesus. And so we are invited into the story. We're invited to, to trust God in those moments of deep struggle, deep temptation. And to be honest, when we look around us, when I look around us, I see a lot of pain, hardship, suffering, confusion, even death. We live in a broken world. But if we are to be honest, when we look on the inside of ourselves, we see the same problems, don't we? We don't have the solution. The solution is outside of any kind of human effort. There's no power, ability, or provision that we can do. It's only by faith in God's sovereign grace. You see here in this story, remember the grand story. God has chosen Jacob to continue the promise. But in this grand story, 
God now offers that, that provision to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It culminates, this story culminates in God's very promise to Adam and Eve and to Abraham and Rebekah and so on. That Jesus Christ came in human flesh, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, was handed over to Roman officials to be crucified and was killed, was hung on a cross. And he died in our place as the pure lamb, the pure sacrifice for you and me. He was buried and three days later he was raised to new life. And now it's that Jesus who's the culmination of all the promises, who reigns in heaven, who intercedes on your behalf if you are a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, he welcomes you into his family today. And you know what might sound crazy as I started with? We know that God's plan is to provide that solution to anyone and everyone through the church. The battle is no longer between Jacob and Esau. It's between God's people and Satan's people, the world. The battle continues. The question is, whose side are you on? There's only two sides. You don't get to pick and choose, and you don't get to be neutral. Are you in God's family? Have you received the promise today? Whose family are you a part of? We, the church, proclaim these promises that you can trust God, that you can depend on him because he's acted for us. All These three actions are for us as his people because we're his plan. We receive God's promises not through human effort but complete faith in God's sovereign grace. Even Though we see many churches struggling, even though we know the church globally is under attack and persecution, God has chosen us to make the manifold wisdom of God visible to the world. He uses the weak to shame the wise. God will continue his promises. Will you have faith in him? Will you join him? Pray with me. God, when we look at a story like this, we're amazed at all the things that you've done, all the things that you have to do to continue to promise. When we look at our own lives, we, we can't help but think of, of your grace, that you've helped us be different. You've helped us walk in holiness but God there there is a there's an opportunity for us to turn away from that there is opportunity for people to hear the good news and not respond so God I pray that this gospel one that started thousands of years ago that you would fix all things through your son would we trust you would we depend on you not to not to build anything else but a church that loves you and loves this community and proclaims the gospel. God, would you help us do that? We need you. 
We need you so desperately. And we acknowledge that need today. We ask this in Jesus' name.